Dear Father, we are thankful for the deposit of faith, the revelation of God. We would we would know nothing of Jesus. We would know nothing of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the Moses and the Exodus, the prophets. We would know uh, not the Ten Commandments. Um, we would most especially not know about Christ, his character, his loveliness, uh, how gentle he is with the weak and the poor and the suffering and how fierce he is with the Pharisee um, and the oppressor. Uh, we wouldn't know anything of the gospel of grace from Paul, uh, that our salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We wouldn't know anything of the resurrection, of your vision for a new heaven and new earth. Um, we are so thankful for revelation. We're thankful for the people that you revealed scripture through. Um, the apostles. We're thankful for our church fathers and church mothers. Uh, we're thankful for the church as messy as it is. It has cared for and brought the gospel to us here in San Francisco in uh, 2021. Um, and we are believers. Uh, Citizens is a believing church. Help us to be a people who believe this morning. We love you. Uh, pray for this time. Uh, pray for our last uh, morning here. I pray that this is our last morning <laughs> in Dover uh, Meadow. Um, but uh, may it be sweet um, and meaningful. Spirit, speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, when I moved to the Bay Area, I've been here about seven years. Um, I moved here to plant a church, and, um, but it was just me. And so I was sort of put together with a group of church planters um, across the Bay Area. There were a handful of us spread throughout from like Vallejo to Santa Cruz uh, to Petaluma. And all of us were very different and had uh, very different objectives. And that was for good reason, because we were planting churches in very different places. We were just talking that San Jose is very different from San Francisco. And so it was good to connect and be together. Um, but one conversation from those first months really stuck with me. <clears throat> there was a guy planting a church in San Jose. And one of the things that he kept saying about the vision for his church, um, it was in his pitch to us, it was what he told people on the street, it was on his website, was that his church wasn't going to be weird. That was the thing that he just kept saying, like, we're not going to be weird. And just to verify my memory, because seven years is a long time and I forget things, I went on the Wayback Machine. Have you guys seen this? Google uh, sponsors it where you can look at a website, like a snapshot of a website from a long time ago. And so I looked back 2014 just to make sure. And, and sure enough, it said, when you or your friend leave our church service, you won't walk away and say, that was weird. And when I first heard that pitch, I thought, that's weird. Um, because you can't get away from the weirdness of Christianity, right? Christianity is weird. If you get away from it, you, you're going to have to leave behind a lot of what makes us Christian. And sure enough, sadly, he's not here anymore. And I actually don't think he's a Christian any longer. In this day and age, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be weird. And I, I mean, I attended one of his services and, and I know what he means by not being weird, right? He doesn't want to be like, come across like a cult, like those sorts of things. But the fact is, it was still a group of people renting a movie theater on Sunday morning in San Jose, singing 
songs to an invisible God, raising their hands. Like that is weird to anyone who is not a Christian and who is not religious. Like that's just an unusual experience. We do weird things. People are walking by and they're like, what is that? And they may know, but then if they think about putting themselves in the position, they're gonna be like, that is just, that's just weird. I don't understand it. And my thought has always been, I can't make this normal to the outsider, uh, to the unbeliever. And I, and I don't know that if I want to make it normal, I think it really, I, I wanna make sure it doesn't become too normal to me. I don't mind if someone walks away from a gathering thinking to themselves, that was weird. I, I think I maybe want that because maybe the Lord could use that pebble in their shoe to mess with them and open their eye to consider, open their ears to consider, what is it that these people believe? Like, why do they do what they do? And the fact is the world is weird, very weird. Human beings are weird. Relationships, existence, and, and it demands an appropriate explanation, a, a just as weird and funky and wild and supernatural explanation. Anything less isn't weird enough. And so today we're beginning a sermon series that walks through seven distinctive behaviors of the church. Uh, so much of our daily life has been restricted for the past 18 months and some of our muscles have gotten a little creaky. Some of mine have for sure. And so we're sort of walking through seven weeks just thinking like, what is it that we do? And how are we gonna do this in an in a increasingly free time? It's not that we haven't done them, but we've just had to do them in really cramped ways. And so looking forward, our hope in the next season is to stretch and exercise a little bit um, to, get, to get back to a kind of normal. What are the verbs of the Christian life? What actions mark the church? What makes the church weird? Um, the, the weeks are there, we are a people who worship. We are a people who belong. We are a people marked by giving, sacrifice and service. We are a people who grow, uh, who receive grace and, and God's love for us now, but also know that he wants us to grow and change and mature. We are a people who bear witness, who are public, Christians, public believers, uh, ambassadors for the kingdom. We are a people who rest, as Rob preached last week, who know that uh, we get to participate, but ultimately it is in God's hands. He is the creator and redeemer and sustainer of the world. But before any of that, first, we are a people who believe. Before we do anything else, before we worship or commit or grow or give or bear witness, we believe. We believe in the gospel of the triune God revealed in scripture and in the coming of Christ, summarized by the great creeds and confessions of our forebears. The church is a people who believe. We have a set of beliefs that we live by. And it's our belief which makes us Christian. And so other people belong, other people give and sacrifice, other people grow and wanna grow. But our motivation, our vision to be a family of missionary servants, following Jesus with our whole selves is because of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what drives us. Other people worship. In fact, Christians in the Bible would say that everybody worships. Everybody is engaged in worship of something, but we as Christians worship God. What makes the church do these things uniquely is what we believe. And so if someone asks you, um, and I hope, I hope that people would ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Why are you a Christian? A great answer will center on your belief. It should center on what you believe to be true before it centers on action and what you do or anything. It's what we confess. To be a Christian is to believe what the Bible says about Jesus. 
I'm convinced that what the Bible says about Jesus is true, namely that he is the eternal son of God and salvation from death is only found in him. There are lots of other stuff that goes with it. There's lots of fine print. Some I understand, some I don't. I have sort of mixed feelings about various things, but ultimately at its core, I trust Jesus for salvation from death. The human problem is death. Everyone is going to die. And the only way through it is by uniting myself to Jesus. And so I'm holding on to him. That's what I believe. That's what we believe. And my faithfulness as a Christian is measured by how closely my life lines up with that belief. Why is belief important? Belief is important. It's not just about being right. Man, doctrinal discussions and difficulties often go off when we're just trying to get it right. But the reason that belief is so important and so central and so primary to us as a church is because belief, faith, is the means of our salvation. Uh, a few years ago, we preached through Ephesians, and Ephesians 2.8 contains one of the most important sen sentences in all of Scripture. It says, for by grace you are saved through faith, not of works. By grace you are saved through faith, not of works. We are saved by grace. That means that grace is the ground of our salvation, not our works, not what we do, not anything else, but God's gracious love for us. Faith, though, is the means of grace. We are saved by grace through faith, through belief, through conviction and trust. We are saved by grace through faith, and that makes faith very, very important. Romans 14 says that anything not done from faith is sin. And so I'm to live my entire life shaped by what I believe and confess to be true about Jesus and God. Listen to Romans 10 verses 9 and 11. The classic evangelistic text, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you say it out loud and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is a beautiful verse to hold on to. Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. It's a, it has to be a bedrock conviction for us today. A willingness to be weird, to be different, to be excluded, to be left behind. Because you know that everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Um, and not just in a hostile sense, but... Christians, because of what we believe, our values just totally change, right? And so our relationship with our work is different. And so, yes, we could be left behind in a, in a persecution or religious persecution sense, but we might just be left behind because, um, as uh, Rob was talking about last week, you're, you decide to close up shop on Sundays. And so you, you're left behind because you're prioritizing that, because of your relationships, because of where you live, uh, where you choose to go. But we know that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is just no way at the end of my life that I'm ever going to regret my faith in Christ. In, in no way. And so I'm going to hold fast to it. I'm going to stick with God and with Jesus, with the gospel and with the church. He is my security. He is my anchor. It reminds me of the story in John 6. 
when Jesus begins to prophesy about his own death, and he does it with a pretty gruesome metaphor. 653 says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. People heard that and they, they recoiled at it, at the metaphor, but then the reality of it too, that Jesus was going to die not as a, a martyr for others, but a martyr for them. And when many disciples heard it, verse 60, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Verse 66, and then after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They left. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter's response is so good and beautiful. He says, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Notice how Peter doesn't say, oh, actually, what you said doesn't bother me. It probably does bother him, right? We can, we can assume that the 12 were also bothered by the metaphor. They didn't like it. They thought it was weird. They thought it was troubling and difficult. And that's why Jesus asked, do you want to go away as well? But for Peter, the math is still in Jesus's favor. No matter what Jesus said, he still trusts Christ and it will always be in his favor. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else can I go? I wonder if you have felt that before, where you are offended by God, by Christ, by what he says, by what he calls you to do. But then when you think about it, you ask, where else is there for me to go? Like, this is where life is. I, I would go. Maybe you've even got, I would go if there was somewhere else, but I can't go anywhere. You have life. You are where life is. And I am convinced that you are the Holy One of God. There is nowhere else for me to be. One of my favorite pithy statements in scripture is Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar. And Paul just comes and he just says, you know what? I will believe him even if everybody else tells me not to. Let God be true and every man a liar, even me. I will call myself a liar before I question God's truthfulness, his trustworthiness. My intelligence lies to me often. My discernment lies to me. My feelings lie to me, but God never lies. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. I chose for the scripture reading this morning, the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient summary of the Christian faith from the fifth century, where they took the Bible and said, what are the core things that Christians believe? And it was actually a baptismal rite where you would, you would be baptized three times where you would say, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Spirit. Baptized once, but dunked three times, right? This was the thing that you were confessing as you entered into the church. And then 
along with the uh, Apostles' Creed, it was a single verse from the end of 1 John. It's literally the last verse of the book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And it's such a striking ending to a book. We're used to letters in the Bible ending like re regular letters, right? So grace and peace to you, Paul. Sincerely, Dave. You know, best you know, Mr. Ainsworth or whatever, like that's how they normally end. And so this is so striking. I can imagine them reading it on a scroll. They get the letter and then just thinking like, man, did we drop a page? Like, did you, what, what's happening? Looking on their back, wondering, but this is how John decides to end the correspondence. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And in the context of first John, the churches John was writing to, had lost a lot of people um, and and not just because of people moving away or whatever but people had left the church um, not only left but then left claiming that they were the true believers so they were secessionists where they left and they began preaching their own gospel against the church john's churches saying that christ didn't die for sin that he didn't die actually, that he didn't teach resurrection, that he was never raised because flesh, flesh doesn't actually matter. And so holiness doesn't matter either. And so they're preaching a very different gospel and, and this caused the church to grow discouraged um, and doubtful and just really in, in a humble way to, to question themselves like, man, do I not know what I'm saying? Like, do I not know Christ is my salvation not real? Has, has it all been a lie? Am I the unjust one? Am I the fool? And 1 John is written to assure them that no, hold fast to what you were originally taught. 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, he talks about the cessationists. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For they, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And so his concluding warning little children keep yourselves from idols is not really directed at just like run-of-the-mill idolatry um you know people who were always like roman and greek pagans that didn't never accepted christ he's really directing it at these people who claimed christ but then their confession of christ was a denial of what was revealed the jesus of the apostles the they claim and follow after a counterfeit gospel so their idol would have looked very similar to jesus but it's just a little off the cessationists had exchanged the gospel first taught by the apostles for a false gospel a fake and this is a warning for us too little little children keep yourselves from idols in every generation the people of god have had to resist idolatry um, this is the story of the Old Testament. Uh, Craig Carter, a, a philosopher, writes, the knowledge of God is never easy to attain in any age. And so the first readers of the Old Testament had to overcome mythological beliefs dominated around them. And they were constantly tempted, right? Um, 
it's a constant struggle to resist Baal worship throughout the whole Old Testament. And then you have in the New Testament, the church similarly is resisting Judaizers, Gnostics. The early church fights against Arianism, which considered Jesus to be a creature. And so we should expect that it will also be hard for us to maintain a closeness to the true gospel, to God as he is. And we should ask ourselves, man, who is our Baal? What Aryans do we have to face? What are our temptations toward idolatry today? What will keep us from being a church who believes the gospel? How are we being wooed away from the teachings of Jesus? Um, one uh, example of this in my mind, many of you know our, our um, our kids go to a classical Christian school, and one of my contributions as a parent and pastor is to interview uh, teachers, people who apply to be teachers, um, and they're applying to teach at a Christian school, and so naturally, as a Christian school, like there's a statement of faith that, that they agree to um, in order to teach, and it's my job to just sort of introduce the statement of faith and ask if they have any questions or concerns, and I remember one interview in particular where someone was asking for clarification and and, you know, I answered like, hey, this is this is what the statement of faith means. But, you know, there's a lot of diversity. Like, how would you articulate your like your position? Like, what can you can you just share me what you think, what you, how you would write this statement? And the person gave this like really great explanation. Um, it was like articulate and clear and fair. Um, she was very thorough. Um, but then I, I was really surprised. It was really striking to me that in her answer, she never made one reference to scripture or Jesus or God or the gospel in any way. It was, it was very much, you know, an appeal to like, man, studies have shown and in my um, education, science seems to indicate, I just feel that in my experience. And, and those are really like fine answers. Like they're like great and reasonable and like totally appropriate um, in lots of contexts, but she's applying not to just like a general school, like she's applying to teach doctrine to students and we're having a conversation about a statement of faith and so you would expect that man you would make some reference to jesus and to scripture even a personal like reference to prayer and to our relationship with god and in her answer and in so many of my answers as i was thinking about myself we reveal our true authority who is it that i anchor myself to and and in this case it wasn't jesus he wasn't even relevant and so we have to be aware when john says little children keep yourselves from idols we have to ask ourselves man where is jesus absent from my thinking or he just doesn't even come up when i explain my convictions and my beliefs and my decisions my authorities and um what influences do I appeal to most of the time? Who do I submit myself to? Is it a certain political persuasion, a field of science or study, your expertise, a journalist, a spiritual guru, or a financial advisor, a feeling or emotion, your own reasoning ability, the ideas of a trusted friend, your cultural background and upbringing, or do you find yourself compelled by the words of scripture? the teaching of the prophets of Jesus, the apostles and the church's fathers and mothers. 
And that's not to say that we know everything that Jesus thinks on a given subject, but I want to know, and I, I want to know. And so there's this posture of even a prayerful posture of like, man, Jesus, what do you think about this? What might he think? And maybe I never learn, I'm not, but I still want him to be in the room with me. I want him to, to be with me throughout my life. I'm asking him in prayer and through his word and through the counsel of other saints. This is why we read the New City Catechism every week. Uh, it's a collection of 52 questions that work through the core doctrines of Christian faith. It's influenced by 2000 years of church history. And CJ and I have had, have, have had lots of conversations where people are like, man, why do you do that? I've never been in a church that's done that. Um, people think, uh, wonder why we do it. They think it's weird. They're worried their friends might think it's weird. And it is, it totally is. Like I, I acknowledge that. But reciting the catechism every week is a way for us not only to be reminded and instructed ourselves what we believe, but also how what I believe is not up to me. That I am in submission to scripture and to Christ and to tradition. And that's uncomfortable and difficult, but it's what it means to be a Christian. Craig Carter, again, all church tradition is subordinate to scripture, but church tradition is not subordinate to an individual's personal opinion. And that just really like struck me. That yes, scripture stands above all, and I stand below scripture, but I also stand below the history of the church. And so we as a church have committed ourselves to a tradition. It's why we read the New City Catechism. It's why we preach expositionally through books of the Bible, even verses that we wouldn't think are relevant. It's why we follow the church calendar. It's one of the reasons that we're wary of shedding old beliefs. And by old beliefs, I mean like 1,500, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 year old beliefs, right? These things I'm, we're not gonna set aside very quickly. And that's unusual because we live in an age of bespoke spirituality where we're like building up our own beliefs through a smattering of sources where we grab a little from experience, a little from intuition, a little from YouTube, from the church, from upbringing and culture. And, and we do that with a lot of things. And we treat our religion and spirituality similarly as an expression of ourselves. But one of the beautiful things about the church is I don't actually have to do that. I can just come and receive. I can just rest that it has already been decided for me. And I just receive it and wrestle with it. I don't have to create my own Christianity. There's a great little book on the Apostles' Creed by Ben Myers. And in it, he talks about uh, the trend of writing your own wedding vows. And he remarks how in the past, one of the things that made weddings special was the fact that you got to say exactly the same thing everybody else did. Um, when a couple said their vows, they weren't just expressing their own feelings. They didn't use their own words. They used the same words that their parents and their ancestors had spoken, and they made those words their own. That there was something significant about receiving the traditional vows and speaking them. But then he goes on and the irony that he points out is that when people write their own vows, they almost inevitably sound like an echo of wider society. It's not like there's something super unique about what they say. It certainly is significant. And I've performed weddings where people write their own vows. Um, 
but he just really uh, hits hard when he says, what could be more conformist than expressing your feelings of love through your own specially crafted wedding vow? The more you try to personalize it, the more it degenerates into triviality and cliche. He says the same thing about company missions and church mission statements, that when we try to make it our own, it actually all sounds the same. And so it is actually very countercultural to say, you know what, I'm not going to make up my own. I'm not going to make up my own belief system. I'm not going to pick and choose. Instead, I will believe an ancient faith, a faith that has been recited for centuries by people of every tribe and tongue. Ben Myers, in baptism, nobody is invited to come up with their own personal statement of belief. All are invited to be immersed into a reality beyond themselves and to join their individual voices to a communal voice that transcends them all. We stand in submission to scripture. And so I may not understand the creed fully, but I trust it more than I trust me. And he acknowledges church tradition is sometimes confused and diverse and at other times clear and unified. The more unified and clear it is on a given point, the more seriously it must be taken. That is, I, I wonder how does that sit with you being told what to believe? Not by me, um, not by anyone alive today at all, like no, by no one alive, but by scripture, by Jesus, by the historical church's age old understanding of the Bible. In our day, it just feels almost impossible to do that. To just say, man, I'm gonna believe, I'm just gonna work I'm going to believe what this tells me to believe and just try to figure it out and understand it, conform myself to it. It feels super vulnerable to do that. It feels scary. We don't trust old things, traditions, authorities. We look at the history of the church, which is so, it's full of wickedness. And so how am I going to attach myself to that? Isn't being told what to believe, what an oppressive theocracy is where you're, where it's mind conformity, right? Surely that's not what God is after. He wants a people who truly and genuinely believe deep down as individuals. And doesn't that require a kind of bespoke faith, a personal relationship with God? Maybe we should write our own vows to God. And I think that's where the wedding vows analogy really works really well because the Bible repeatedly describes our relationship to God, Christ as that between a bride and a groom. And in the same way that beautiful marriages begin with the same vows, but flower into something very different. So a marriage can be beautiful in so many different ways. They begin in the same place, saying till death do us part, but they become like beautiful expressions. In the same way, our relationship with God Christians enter into faith saying pretty much the same thing, but the expression of it is so diverse. We all say, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only son, born of a virgin. We believe in his death and resurrection, his ascension, in the Holy Spirit, the one holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life eternal. As we become Christians and then every Sunday from there on out, we make this confession and call Jesus Lord, even though we don't really know what we're saying fully. But isn't that the case of every bride and groom? 
they don't know what they're saying. Ask any married couple. They had no idea what those vows meant. And they learn it as they go. They learn it as they go. But they still knew enough. They knew enough to know that whatever it means, I want it. I mean it. It's a lifelong fight to keep meaning it, but I'm going to do that. I am going to mean this faith. Let God be true and every man a liar. We are a people who believe in God. We believe, help our unbelief. Thus far, I've spoken about belief in this sort of hostile sense. I guess it's maybe in the, in the mood that I was this week. <laughs> um, belief in the face of opposition. And sometimes faith can feel like that. Um, the activities of the church, which we're going to talk about in the faith, they both spring from faith and they also guard it. Um, and so faith leads to worship and worship also builds faith. Faith leads to giving. Giving also builds faith. A faith which doesn't give is a, is a weak and vulnerable faith. It's why it's practically impossible to remain a Christian outside the church because faith needs to be nurtured just as a plant can't survive without soil and sunlight. Uh, faith can't survive uh, without it either. But we shouldn't just think of belief in a defensive posture. Um, there's also beauty and joy in belief. Uh, a philosopher described Christianity as a truth you can fall into, which is a great, a great statement. And as a church, we should believe, be a people who believe fiercely, but we should also be a people who believe joyfully. And that's because of what we believe the content of our faith. Yes, we believe in sin and Satan and death and judgment and danger and all the rest. How could you not given the statement of the, the, the state of the world? But more than that, we believe in the triumph of goodness and truthfulness and beauty. We believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who parted the Red Sea and rescued his people and defeated their oppressors. We believe in Yahweh. We believe in Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. We believe in grace. We believe in freedom, real freedom, in healing, in justice, in adoption. We believe in shalom, in joy and love. We believe in the resurrection. Stop and think about what the resurrection is. Maybe that's what we would say. What does it mean to be a Christian? I believe in the resurrection and just say that because all of us are so terrified and heartbroken over death. And we can say as Christians, I believe in the resurrection. I believe that death is not the end and that life comes after. What aspect of Christian belief do you need to fall into today? Do you need to receive and explore and dig into not the, not the like, difficult, thorny side issues that we get so hung up on. What's the conviction that you just need to love believing? That you love it so much that you want to tell people about it? There's a lot of other stuff, but I want to tell you about this belief that is true. This attribute of God, this attribute of Jesus, this part of the story. Dorothy Sayers, the um, novelist, she once wrote, uh, the dogma is the drama. 
the doctrine is the drama. That's where the action is. That's where the life is. And we, I, speaking personally, there's so many other things that become drama to me. Um, whether it be on a global, national, political scale, but even in my own life, there are so many things that just like draw my attention. And what she's saying is like, no, actually the old, the creed is where the drama's at. It's where the excitement is. That Jesus, very God of very God, became man to take our sin and to save us from death. That is wild. The dogma is the drama. It is what gives the church life and strength and glory. It's what drives our life. It's what makes it beautiful. And so what belief do we need to bear witness to, to share with our friends and neighbors and co-workers, someone who might think it weird, but actually weird is what they need. And maybe that's you, where you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You couldn't read the creed in faith but you're intrigued, you're looking for a truth that you can fall into. Which one of your neighbors and coworkers is looking for a truth that they can fall into? Christianity is that truth. There's nothing like it. There is nothing so true and good and beautiful as the gospel of Christ. But you have to experience it to really get it. Psalm 34, eight, taste and see that the Lord is good. Ben Myers describes the beginning of faith as tasting a dish you've never tried and you see other people enjoying it. You've read the reviews, which are admittedly mixed. There are some people that really hate it, but it looks good and you think that it might be good, but you'll never know for sure until you try it. You have to taste and see that the Lord is good. He says the first act of faith is an act of trust that gives rise to ever increasing certainty which in turn nourishes a deeper and more knowledgeable trust. The church is a people who believe, who trust, who know, who have tasted and seen and can't unsee that the Lord is good. I wanna close with the liturgical prayer, reading the Apostles' Creed. And um, if you'd like, um, you can read, it's a call and response. You can read in between the stanzas. Uh, Mark 9, 24, I believe, help my unbelief. Because we're all in that between as we read the Apostles' Creed where, man, I, I believe this, but I want to believe it more. Uh, there are parts of me that, uh, that are still in disbelief. And so I'll read it and then we'll close. And so the Apostles' Creed begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe, help my unbelief. And in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I believe, help my unbelief. He descended into hell, into death. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of Father and he will judge the living and the dead. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. I believe, help our unbelief. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are 
thankful for doctrine, um, thankful for dogma, thankful for the gospel of Christ, the faith once delivered to all the saints. I'm thankful that scripture is finished, that it's a closed book, that people aren't adding things to it, that the gospel in many ways is a, it's a fully written story. Um, we're just waiting for act four to get to act five. I'm thankful that it's a truth we can fall into, that I don't have to create my own system because I wouldn't make anything as beautiful and wonderful and challenging and difficult and more realistic and lifelike as what you have revealed. Father, help us to be a people who believe fiercely. Protect us from idols. Protect us from temptations to shed unfashionable beliefs. Help us to hold true. Father, would you help us to believe joyfully that we would be people who are proud of the gospel, that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe. And give us opportunities to share, to share our faith, to share our beliefs with others, to point out how the dogma is the drama. That is where life is. We love you. Father, we're thankful for you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for teaching us what is true. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.